What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I had the immense pleasure of sitting back down with Lynn Alden. She's incredible. I'm not going to ruin any of the episode. You guys are about to have a nice special treat. Really enjoyed this one. As always, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash Apps don't use stack sets, send sets, receive sets, sell sets if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 sats because sats are the standard. One Bitcoin equals 100 million sats. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can stack sats. Yes, one Bitcoin is worth around $50,000 right now, but you don't have to spend $50,000 to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy whole sats. I mean, you do have to spend $50,000 to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy as little as $1 worth via the Cash App. And guess what? They're, they're starting to roll out the, the ability to send Bitcoin P2P to other Cash App users. You can use the Cash App to send Bitcoin to other Cash App users, not cash anymore. Well, on top of cash, you can do both, either or. They're rolling it out. I've used it. It's pretty dope. Good for on-chain footprint as well. So if you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet, make sure you do so. Use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls lacrosse and ding, 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 ding. New sponsor alert. Very proud to have the sponsor on. We've had conversations with the gentlemen who are running this company. Max Kedon in Roman. Hoddle Hoddle is now on the TFTC team. All right. So, and and they want to let you freaks know that Lend at Hoddle Hoddle is a new non-custodial Bitcoin backed lending platform. It allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users globally anonymously and on your own terms, right? You're going to meet, you're going to create a multi-sig escrow to, to borrow funds. You're going to have one key throughout the whole way. If you're short funds, you don't need to sell your Bitcoins. You can get liquidity by borrowing, using your Bitcoin as collateral. And the great thing is, again, you don't need to entrust somebody. You're not giving up custody. Your collateral always remains locked in escrow and you control a key to it. If you have some stable coins laying around for some reason, if you're a stable coin guy or gal, uh, and you're looking to earn uh, yield on that, Lend, uh, Lend at Hoddle Hoddle also offers uh, lending markets for these. If you if you want to get some yield on your stable coins that are sitting around, just dump them in the Hoddle Hoddle market, offer them up to lend them out. You can do that as well. Uh, so you freaks can go create your offers and set your own terms at lend.hoddlehoddle.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L, H-O-D-L dot com. Uh, this is available, the, the, the Lend product, using your Bitcoin as collateral to get some liquidity, uh, is available to U.S. customers. Be aware. Some of you U.S. customers are like, ah, oh, we can never use HODL, HODL. You can for this product. So be aware. Non-custodial. Okay. Enjoy. Lend.hodlhodl.com. If you guys are liking this podcast, please like, subscribe, share, r- rate, review. If you feel so uh, compelled to give us a rate, a rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. We would really appreciate it. It goes a long way. We love you freaks. Uh, We want to make sure that people are getting quality Bitcoin information. As we roll into another bull market, we know uh, there's a lot of scammers out there. And so the, the, the more ratings and reviews we get, the better visibility we get on these apps and the better information we like to think people are getting at the end of the day. So please help support TFTC in that way. If, if you, if you can, we would, we would really appreciate it. And we love you guys. Enjoy. 
You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here. What day is it? I don't even remember what day it is, Lynn. I, I, told, I just told you I'm all discombobulated. I got up at 3.30 to catch a flight, missed the flight. Now I'm back in South Jersey. I'm supposed to be doing this from Florida, um, but it's Wednesday, I believe. Wednesday afternoon. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Doing well. We're sitting back down with Lynn Alden. Second appearance on the show. Very excited to, to have you on today, considering the, the current conditions of the market. Uh, the way the Fed's posturing uh, around uh, digital currencies, what the, the Treasury uh, may have to do uh, in the, in the uh, T-bill market, uh, considering what's going on in the repo markets right now. Uh, we can talk a little bit about Bitcoin and energy. Uh, the 10-year yields going crazy. Commodities are going crazy. Uh, I, uh, where should we start? What, what's on top of your mind and, uh, of how we should start this conversation about everything that's going on. I think one of the biggest things that, that's kind of uh, hitting markets now is that rise in the in the long-term treasury rates. And it's actually, it's happening to a lot of sovereign bonds around the world where the long end of the curve is is rising uh, from very low levels, obviously. Many of them are quite low still by, by absolute standards, uh, but that rate of change matters a lot. And so that's, uh, if you look at, you know, if you, if you, Kind of think about how you value an equity, for example. You, 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 you know, if you're kind of going on that old school, you know, kind of value investing method, you, you estimate what you think the cash flows are going to be in the future, and that can include, you know, your growth estimate and things like that. And then you discount them to the present rate, and then you kind of buy that those discounted cash flows. Uh, but that's obviously really sensitive to what discount rate you use. What is the time value of money? And because we kind of hit like an event horizon where you know we, we hit zero rates around the world and some places negative, uh, there's really you know if you kind of do those models, there's almost no time value of money, and so that's resulted in a ton of speculation in these really high growth unprofitable companies because they're they're looking out 20 years and they're kind of hypothesizing right or wrong what their growth rates are going to be and that you know they're maybe not profitable now, maybe not profitable in five years. But sometime in the distant future, they'll be profitable, hopefully, from, from their perspective. And so they're, they're willing to pay up almost any amount of money for those. But as soon as you start to have, you know, uh, rates rise, that actually brings back, you know, kind of reality about, you know, money actually has a time value. Uh, and so we're seeing kind of a hit to some of these really speculative stocks, whereas you see things like banks or energy stocks or, you know, kind of that, that the value things, kind of the things that have underperformed over the past decade are doing okay in this environment. And we've seen some, some, you know, it's kind of hit the gold market a little bit. It's, you know, it's, it's probably yeah, impacting the Bitcoin price a little bit. It's kind of tr trickling through multiple different asset classes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting to watch this week, particularly. It seems like something, I don't want to say it's broke, but there's been some shift where, where the, the tenure specifically is something I've been paying attention, paying attention to this week. And um, I think, you wrote a thread earlier this week on the repo markets, what's going on there and how the, the treasury may have to step in. And it's not exactly the same situation as, as what happened in, in the fall, late summer of 2019. It's uh, where, where cash dried up and, and the Fed need to 
step in and provide liquidity for for margin trading essentially at the end of the day is what came to be known um but there was a story in zero hedge a couple of weeks ago um basically saying hey there's there's another uh another i don't want to say incident but there's something going on in in the repo markets uh again um but the thread that you wrote on february 18th says it's not the the same exact situation as it was in 2019 there's a little bit more nuance and uh, the Treasury may have to step in or the Fed to to do an operation twist like uh, a facility to to switch out of durations to provide liquidity. What's going on there? Uh, so it's actually funny because in some ways it's the opposite of what happened in late 2019. And it's also we have actually different things happening on the short end of the long end of the Treasury curve. And so as we just talked about, the long end of the Treasury curve is rising, uh, you know, because uh, you know, inflation expectations are, are higher than the treasury rate. And so it's natural for the treasury rates to go up. But of course, that causes some issues for, for a lot of highly leveraged sectors. But on the other end of the curve, if you look at T-bills, like three-month T-bills or one-year T-bills, uh, it's interesting because they're actually, those rates are going lower. And there's actually a ton of demand relative to supply. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because, you know, over the past year, we've kind of done unprecedented monetary policy and fiscal policy. Uh, and so we've actually created a ton of base money as well as a ton of treasury bills. And sometimes you can get a mismatch between how much there is because banks and other institutions have to have to hold, you know, kind of safe collateral for, for some of their operations. And so if you if you go back to late 2019, uh, I was I was very active uh, on Twitter during that time because a lot of people misunderstood what was happening where there were a couple of analysts, uh, you know, like Luke Groman and others. And, and I, I was kind of on onto this trail pretty early of uh, kind of a seeing what was happening. And basically, there was a mismatch between the amount of T-bills uh, that were available compared to uh, cash uh, and you know, bank reserves. And so basically, the Federal Reserve had to come in and begin expanding its balance sheet uh, by basically buying T-bills. And that, that's essentially how they fixed that problem. And ironically, in some ways, they have the opposite problem now where they have a ton of bank reserves relative to the amount of T-bills in the system. Uh, and that's actually because you know over the past year, the, the Treasury issued a ton of bonds. Uh, obviously, to, to fund a lot of their stimulus, but they actually didn't spend all of their stimulus left. They still have a significant uh, chunk of their of their cash sitting at the Federal Reserve, uh, basically as like their you know the, basically the the, uh, the government's giant checking account. And normally they keep that under about four hundred billion dollars, but they they hit all time record highs of something like one point eight trillion, and now they're they're planning on drawing that down. So they're basically going to spend money without issuing T bills because they already issued those T-bills long ago. And so you have all this kind of base money coming back into the system and those banks are supposed to, you know, buy T-bills with it. And there's, there's just a finite amount of T-bills. So what does this mean for inflation? Are we finally going to get that inflation uh, in, in the uh, consumer market that people have been talking about for so long? Or I think over the next couple of years, yeah, this, this particular operation won't do it much because really there's, it's, it's mostly that they're just going to issue fewer bonds uh, while continuing to spend pretty normally. The big thing to watch for inflation is going to be what happens with the upcoming fiscal spending, uh, you know, the $1.9 trillion stimulus, and then potentially another one later this year. Uh, because we, you know, if you go back to say 20, uh, 2008, 2009, that period, you know, we saw a big expansion of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, but we didn't actually see a big expansion of the broad money supply. Uh, because, you know, basically, you know, if you look at the fractional reserve system, there's base money and there's there's broad money. Of course, there's different ways to measure broad money. So whereas base money is basically 
you know, that, that includes currents in circulation and it includes uh, deposits that banks have at the Fed. That's their, that's their reserve cash. Uh, that's basically like wholesale money. Uh, whereas broad money includes currency in circulation, uh, checking accounts, savings accounts, things like that. That's what actually we have is like money. Uh, and in the United States, for example, you know, broad money is about three or four times bigger than base money, depending on what time period you're looking at. Uh, and so uh, back then we had a rapid expansion in base money, but there's no way to get it into broad money because it only goes into broad money if banks lend it uh, and basically you know, multiply that money or if the federal government runs massive deficits and has the Federal Reserve buy most of the bonds associated with that, that spending. And back then, you know, even though we had you know, some fiscal spending, uh, on the grand scheme of things, it actually wasn't enough to really kind of drive up money supply, broad money supply, whereas the stuff we've seen over the past year, that, that massively increased the broad money supply. We had a 25% increase in US broad money supply over the past year, which is the biggest year-over-year increase we've seen since World War II. It's it's very unnerving to a certain extent. What's going on, especially when you consider the the expansion of of the the Fed's balance sheet in conjunction with what they're doing on the fiscal side now with this massive stimulus. And I saw you tweet out a meme uh, earlier today, the the, the look back meme of uh, people looking away from Bitcoin and looking at copper. Um, so is this is this run in commodities that we've seen so far this year? Sort of people attempting to, to front run this fiscal stimulus and assuming that it's going to lead to um, some growth in the economy or, or some uh, stoke some uh, life into the economy or people are they expecting to go spend and build stuff? We've had a couple different things. I mean, we've had, we've had disruptions in supply chains and so that drives up prices. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, uh, issues with labor, things like that. And so, you, you know, you get push up in, in agricultural prices. And then in just in general, when you have a lot of more money in the system, not just base money, but actually broad money in people's accounts, uh, that results in more money chasing the same amount of goods roughly that was, was there before. And then, for example, if you look at, uh, you know, the copper market, you've had some, a couple of mines were shut down, partially from COVID, sometimes from protests, whatever the case may be, you have some supply disruptions. And it's interesting because that, that market was already getting pretty tight. And so if you look over the past decade, we've been in... You know, we've been in like a 12-year bear market in commodities. If you look at the a broad commodity index, uh, so of course energy is, has has been a big part of that. We've had, you know, uh, copper prices. A lot of these a lot of these markets have been pretty weak, and that's because you know commodities tend to go in these really big cycles where you, you know you have high commodity prices, so that encourages a lot of production, and then something slows down. Like last time, it was China slowed down, and so you had all this oversupply of commodities, and it you know you had a lot less demand than originally thought, and so it took a long time to work out that excess supply. And whereas if you look forward, you know, copper is actually pretty tight now, as, as are many other kind of critical uh, elements. The one that's kind of in a, a somewhat structural oversupply has been the energy market. But even that, if you look, uh, you know, there's been pretty big CapEx reductions over the past several years. Uh, and, you know, in particular in, in 2020, there's a lot of CapEx destruction. And then so when, you, when you're seeing kind of a rebound in demand like we are now, there's actually some tightness there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the monthly copper chart right now. It's- reaching levels not seen since 2013 right now. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's up pretty big. And if you look up some of the copper stocks, I mean, they almost look like a, like a mini Bitcoin chart. Basically, if you look at their performance in 2020, it just kind of, if you look up like Freeport McMoran, it just kind of spiked from, I think the low in March was something like five bucks a share. And now it's like in the upper thirties. <laughs> yeah. Like Bitcoin mining stock. Right? <laughs> it's the, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much. 
Yeah, and then you, know, you look at lumber too. It's yeah. interesting because lumber, right? Like a bunch of people bought new homes or they were locked down and did uh, did uh, some remodeling in their homes to dri- drive up demand, even though people aren't working. And um, that's another market that's pretty hot right now as well. Exactly. Yeah, price is pretty much doubled and it's it's at all time highs. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, is this what happens when you try to micromanage a complex system like a global economy? Well, it actually, it shows it shows some of the, the the fragility we build in because we we've optimized all of our supply chains for like efficiency rather than resilience. And so, you know, when you have kind of all semiconductors coming out of a, you know a couple countries, uh, or you have uh, you know just uh, copper only comes really from a handful of countries if you look at it, you know, especially in South America, but a couple others. And so, when you have that kind of fragility. Uh, that that's what happens. And when you look at kind of supply chains of, of where we manufacture stuff versus where they're, where they're consumed, uh, we've just really kind of over the past year really tested uh, that level of globalization and, and fragility we've kind of built into everything. Yeah, and the fragility is rampant, systemic almost, right? Like I think back to Wall Street bets and that whole debacle earlier this year, right? And going back to the, the collateral in the system and that's that, I had a theory that the, that whole Wall Street bets, GameStop uh, incident, whatever you want to call it, I keep saying incident, that seems to be the word of the podcast, uh, it sort of pulled forward uh, some problems and, and laid bare some fragility in, in, the, uh, in the clearing markets of, of how illiquid the, the collateral was in, in some, to some extent, right? Yeah, and showing that people could be short more shares than uh, <laughs> you know, shares exist. And it's almost like you have fractional reserve banking of shares. And so that, that's kind of the issue that popped up there. And, you know, and, and obviously just, just naturally like uh, financial leverage in general is, is, fra- is adds fragility to the system. And so we've had, you know, over this past year, you know, part of the reason there's such these, these giant kind of responses uh, from governments to the situation is that there's already so much leverage in the system that you'd have, you know, bankruptcies across the board if you had just things play out kind of natural supply and demand. Whereas if you would have had more resilience in the system, more savings, less debt, uh, you could have had much more targeted assistance uh, for for some of this. Yeah, and we were reminded again last week with the uh, with the rolling blackouts in the southwest part of the country, the fragility of those grid systems to a certain extent, um, uh, the subsidizing of certain energy sources over others, and the prioritization leading to um, a a lack of uh, needed capacity to serve the demand for heating homes in Texas and Oklahoma specifically. So, yeah, it's been a wild week. Wild yeah, couple of weeks here. That's my question. I've been following the Fed since 2011, 2012, not as not as aggressively as I did back then, but it's always been the question lingering in my mind, like how effective can they be as they they embark on these these bigger uh, stimulus um, facilities and and so moving forward, like how effective do you think the Fed can be at controlling this? Does, does Jerome Powell have, have control over this situation in your mind? Uh, so they have certain tools left, but basically it's more in fiscal court. It's more about what Congress does. And so mm-hmm. a way I like to describe is that the Federal Reserve is, is pretty decent at putting the brakes on because if, if they just rise, you know, raise rates or let raise, uh, rates rise naturally, uh, you know, that, that can you know, kind of return some sanity to the market. Uh, on the other hand, if you have, uh, you know, kind of if, if you're in a deflationary or disinflationary environment, there's not a ton that the Fed can do. Uh, cutting rates, you know, only helps uh, to a certain extent, especially if you start running into the zero bound. 
And at that point, we see, you know, it's more about fiscal, what, what they're going to do. You know, obviously handing out checks to people is more effective than the Fed, you know, deciding to buy more treasuries uh, and just kind of, you know, increasing reserves in the system without increasing broad money supply. And so really it's kind of at the point now where the Fed's job in a nutshell is to monetize what the fiscal authority is doing. And so there's really no way that, that you know, there's not enough private demand for those bonds out there. And so the Federal Reserve has to buy a significant percentage of their bonds. And I think the big questions now is what, what are they going to do with long end rates? And so if you look back to the 1940s, which was the only other time the U.S. was in this fiscal situation with a, you know, 100% debt to GDP, uh, what the Federal Reserve did was they said, okay, we're going to buy a lot of the bonds, and we're also going to cap uh, not just the short end of the, the curve, but also the long end of the curve. And basically, you know, it, kind of what we see now is that there's, you know, they're already kind of affecting the supply and demand of money, right? So you're, you're, you're basically doing price manipulation of money. And back then they did it of money and time. So they, they did the whole treasury curve and they basically submerged it below the inflation rate. And it's, it, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, obviously that caused all sorts of problems. If you were holding bonds or cash, you pretty much got killed on a real basis. Even though you got all your money back, there's no nominal default. If you were holding bonds or cash in the, in the 30s, you lost roughly a third of your purchasing power uh, and so, you know, I think we're in an environment now where uh, because there's so much debt to GDP, uh, they can't realistically, you know, raise rates. That's different from, you know, what made the 40s different from the 70s. And, and this environment's more like the 40s. And so they're going to have a kind of a, a, a tough time on their hands if we do get inflation uh, because, you know, they pretty much have to let it run hot. And so that is really damaging to anyone holding cash or bonds and is, is beneficial for people holding hard assets, uh, whether it's, you know, commodities or Bitcoin or high quality companies, things like that. Yeah. I mean, they, they front run this, this inflation pretty hard already posturing like, Hey, we're going to try and overheat our typical target and overshoot the 2% historical target for inflation. Um, they're going to try that. And then Jerome Powell begging the fiscal side, to get it together and like do you think the fiscal side is going to get it together they're squabbling over six hundred dollars for for a stimulus check right now it seems so my my base case is yes but it is something to watch because the you know the senate is is pretty tight and so you have uh you know 50 50 of them that caucus with the republicans 50 of them that caucus with the democrats and then you have uh kamala harris as the tiebreaker and you have a couple of them like uh um uh the one from west virginia uh, that uh, is some, you know, some of them are more moderate. And so uh, they, you know, some of the Democrats can put the brakes on, on that. That's, you know, you need all 50 votes if they want to pass something uh, because, you know, most of the Republicans will, will uh, probably oppose it. So you either need to get all of the Democrats or you need to get, you know, one or two or three Republicans to kind of sign off on it as well. And so, you know, they're, they're somewhat limited in what they can get through. You can't just push through anything they want. They're definitely going to have to negotiate and kind of and kind of get something through and probably probably throw West Virginia kind of a, you know, something to, to, to grease the wheels a little bit, I think. But uh, <laughs> so my, my base case is they're going to pass something. But, uh, you know, there's definitely going to be some drama around it, I think. And there's, it's not a guarantee they could run into hangups. You I know, mean, a lot of people thought that they were going to pass something earlier like when you had, uh, you know, when they were working on the second half of 2020 to pass those stimulus checks and other things like that, uh, you know, that ended up getting pushed pretty far back all the way to the end of December. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of surprising to a lot of people because people thought that, you know, with the election cycle coming up, they would have passed something. Uh, but that that was delayed longer than people would have expected. And it's always possible that something like that happens again. Yeah. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. We talk about 
right now we're talking about like the technical aspects of how inflation may present itself in the combination of what the Fed's doing with the fiscal side. But like, do you think about like the social aspect a lot? Like, uh, like the, the fact that last year people were openly questioning, like if the Fed can print all this money, why are we paying taxes? People holding up US dollars, like they're printing so much money. Like, is this even worth anything? Like, and if the powers that be on, on Capitol Hill can't get their, their stuff together in a, in a timely manner? Do you, do you see confidence waning to a point where, where the social aspect of, of how that affects inflation or confidence in the dollar comes into play at all? Well, I think it, it showed people in some ways how arbitrary the system was. And you know, one thing I've been just analyzing is the incentive structure. And so one of the reasons I expect inflation in the 2020s is because I don't think they're really going to stop the fiscal spending until it actually starts causing you know more acute fiscal uh, inflationary problems. And so if you can basically print money and give it to people, and you know, the ways you measure inflation are still low, then why wouldn't you do it again, right? So why, you know, what would politicians be like? Oh, we're just going to stop now. We don't care about our reelection. We don't care. We're, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be fiscally, uh, you know, uh, cautious now, even though there's no downside. And so of course they're going to, you know, likely do it again and again and again until you have that more inflationary response. And so uh, that's kind of the way I'm analyzing it where, you know, basically there was all these inflationary concerns back in, you know, a decade ago and they never really materialized in the same way that people thought. I mean, obviously we've had, uh, you know, a, a run up in asset prices and stuff partially because of low interest rates, uh, but you didn't see that really broad, you know, sharp increase in broad money supply. You didn't see that increase in say commodity prices. And so I think now people are saying, well, it didn't cause inflation last time. Let's just let's triple it, let's quadruple it, let's keep going. And so I do think that this time they're basically, you know, going to be quote unquote successful and they're going to, you know, find inflation of, you know, finally. Yeah. It's crazy to me that this is their goal. So over the weekend, last weekend, I fell down a, a rabbit hole, people sharing excerpts from books, basically documenting inflate hyperinflationary uh, instances throughout history. Uh, Weimar Republic after world war one, Austria after world war one, all the way back to Diocletian in 300 AD in Rome, uh, and then late 18th century France um, uh, during, during the Third French Republic. And not everything that the U.S. is doing right now is exactly like hap what happened in each of those instances, and neither of those instances were identical to each other. Um, and, and that's something that really interested me about your clubhouse debate slash conversation with Nick Carter Luke Roman and Brent Johnson from a couple of weeks ago or last week, I forget exactly when it was, but uh, the debate over um, uh, whether or not hyperinflation could come to the U.S. because the U.S. has the, the world reserve currency, that status uh, makes it so we can stave off high rates of inflation. Uh, like, that just seems very hubristic to me. Like, does that argument hold any weight in your mind? Uh, in my view, not really. There are there are different components of it, and so I think you know one of the biggest factors is what what is your what are your de uh, liabilities denominated in, uh, and so that that is probably the the more fundamental difference uh, between normal inflation and hyperinflation, uh, which is that you know if you look at cases of hyperinflation, usually you know you have one or two things, often both. You have a, a major drop in production, uh, like a catastrophic one, like you lost a war or some some like you know massive social policy like like Zimbabwe did with their you know the, how they organized their ownership of land and things like that. You you can have if you have a massive fall off in production, uh, you can have hyperinflation. Uh, and two, 
is if you have asset, I mean, if you have liabilities denominated in a currency that your country can't print, uh, then you, you're more likely to outright nominally default or hyperinflate. And so, for example, if you have Argentina that has a lot of dollar-dominated debt, you know, they can't print the dollars. Uh, whereas if you look at, say, Japan has you know, most of their debt is denominated in, in yen. You have Europe, most of it's denominated in euros. In the United States, most of it's denominated in dollars. They have a little bit more control. They, you know, they're more monetary sovereign. And so they're less likely to experience outright hyperinflation because you have you have more diversified economies. You haven't had a you haven't like lost a war, and you don't have this kind of foreign obligation. Uh, and so that's why outright hyperinflation hasn't been my base case. But you can still have pretty significant inflation even if you are a developed uh, uh, currency. And one one example I like to use is that you know uh, during the whole like you know. Uh, 1920s, 30s, 40s period when we had that kind of previous transition of world currencies, uh, you know, the, the, the British pound uh, devalued more than the dollar. And, and so basically transitioning from being global reserve currency to kind of just being one of the major currencies, which is what they went through, uh, that, you know, was devalued their currency more than, than the upstart one, which was the United States back then. And so, you know, being the global reserve currency doesn't protect you necessarily from sharp devaluation. It doesn't guarantee you'll devalue less than others. It really comes down to a couple you know, key variables. So uh, one is the United States is running structural trade deficits and current account deficits. Whereas if you look at Europe, China, and Japan, some of the other major currency blocks, they're running structural current account surpluses. And so all else being equal, the dollar has a lot more room to devalue uh, than some of them. And the one thing that's really kind of holding it up uh, is, uh, you know, there's a lot of dollar-dominated debt around the world. And so, like we mentioned with Argentina, a lot of these other countries have dollar-based debts. And so that ironically represents a source of demand for dollars because they need dollars to service their debts. Uh, and so we have this kind of weird situation where there's a lot of kind of demand for dollars. Some of it, some of it's natural, some of it's artificial from this leverage. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where historically it's been it's been pretty good for the United States because it kind of expands their their empire, I guess you could call it. But over over decades, it's actually hurting the U.S. in, in many ways more than it's helping the U.S. Because it, although it, it gives them more global reach and that empire status, it kind of it kind of hollows out the domestic manufacturing base because all of our exports are less competitive and things like that. And so, you know, if you've you know if you've worked in technology or healthcare or, or government, uh, you know, you've done pretty well in this environment or finance. Uh, but if you make things, if you want to just, you know, if you want to produce something like that, the United States has been one of the worst economies that you'd, you'd be in. You'd rather be in you, even let alone emerging markets, but you'd rather be in Japan or Europe, you know, Germany or things like that, where they haven't had that kind of structural issue. And so overall, yeah, there's really no inherent defense that the global reserve currency gives you against devaluation other than you have to keep monitoring the supply and demand of that currency. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we touched on this the first time you came on, the Triffin Dilemma and potentially running its course uh, in the beginning of this decade. And yeah, so is that the goal with this fiscal stimulus to get as much money in fiscal and monetary stimulus? I get as much money into the markets, hoping that Americans will then go buy goods abroad and those countries will be able to service their U.S. dollar-denominated debt more. Um, is that a correct assumption there? Well, I think for I mean, there's kind of there's kind of different mechanisms. So, so the Federal Reserve has swap lines that they can open with other countries, and so mm -hmm. they did that back during the early part of 2020 when the when the pandemic hit. Uh, and so that you know the express purpose there is to prevent dollar shortages internationally, so that they can still service their debts. And the reason they have to do that is because 
you know, the foreign sector overall has something like $13 trillion in, in, in uh, debt denominated in dollars. And the funny thing is they're not, they're not even owed to United States. They're owed like to Europe. They're owed to Japan. They're owed, I mean, a small fraction are owned to the U.S. But uh, there's, so there's all these kind of, it just, they happen to be denominated in dollars regardless of who they're owed to. Uh, but the other side of the coin, uh, you know, foreign markets have something like, you know, 40, $42 trillion in, in uh, um, um, uh, U.S. Uh, dollar-denominated assets. And so that includes U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, uh, U.S. real estate, things like that. And so if there's an environment where there's a dollar shortage, uh, then some of those countries that have assets have to sell some of their assets. And so they say, okay, we'll sell treasuries. And that makes the treasury market go totally liquid and yield spike. And then the Federal Reserve has to come in and they have to buy a lot of those treasuries as like the buyer of last resort. And then they also issue swap lines and stuff. And they say, okay, please stop selling our treasuries. Just here's, here's, we'll loan you some dollars. Just do what you got to do. Uh, and so they kind of cool that off. Now the, the stimulus is another matter. I mean, that's mostly targeted at, at, at you know, uh, Americans in general and basically trying to push solvency problems away. So if you have, for example, people had a lot of debts, then they lost their job. Uh, and then they can't service the debts. And if you had that happen on a wide enough scale, you'd have mass insolvency. You also have like a, an issue with like people unable to pay their rents. And then if they can't pay their rents, even if you do a, a, a moratorium and say, okay, you don't have to pay your rents. Well, then the landlords are screwed because, you know, their revenue source is cut off, but they still owe their banks uh, money. And so one of the things the government can do is just come in and print money and give everyone checks. And that kind of pushes that problem away. Uh, but then you you risk inflation down the road because you've you've substantially increased the broad money supply. That's why, like over the weekend, I was again doing that research on, on past hyperinflationary events. Like I couldn't stop thinking of Weimar again. They lost the war. They didn't have the reserve currency, but they locked down their economy when when France occupied uh, the republic, demanding to get paid back uh, the reparations they were owed. And do something obviously that's not happening here in america but we lock down our economy and yeah. go back to weimar like they they forced everybody or didn't force they said hey don't go to work we're not paying these people back we'll print money and put it in your bank account so you can live it's not the exact same situation here but it's very similar in the fact that we shut down large parts of the economy and luckily the fiscal side hasn't been able to give too much fiscal stimulus up to this point but it looks like they're dead set on doing more uh, and it just reminds me of that a lot. Again, not exactly the same, but very similar, very eerily similar. Yeah, it's a similar case. It just it's, it's more extreme. And so, you know, uh, the United States has had kind of a flat industrial production for, for a few decades now, part, you know, going back to the Triffin dilemma. And so it's not as bad as losing a war, but it certainly kind of uh, makes us exposed to supply chain issues. Uh, and so, the, you know, the Weimar Republic was a more extreme version of that, having having lost World War One, uh, And then two, it goes back to you know what your liabilities are denominated in, like I mentioned before, because you know in Weimar's case they they owe those war reparations, and so that basically represented liabilities that they could not print, uh, and so they were they were kind of in that that emerging market situation mm -hmm. where they're more prone to hyperinflation, and so yeah, I wouldn't just characterize this as being anywhere near that extreme of a case, uh, but we do have uh, you know certain elements. We have we have kind of certain elements that 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 look like. You know, I mean, the classic example I use is, is 1940s United States. Like we don't have yeah. to go uh, uh, foreign to kind of find a similar thing. 
you can go back to the 1940s and say we're actually kind of like that in many ways. If you look at long-term charts of fiscal deficits and monetary policy and yield curve control and all these different things, you know, almost every every checkbox you can have looks like the 1940s, uh, except in some ways slightly worse because, uh, you know, back then we we were running a structural current account surplus. Uh, we were a creditor nation, meaning we owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned of our assets, whereas now we're going through the, a very similar uh, fiscal and monetary situation, except we're on the opposite side of that. So we're running a current account deficit, and we are a debtor nation. So foreigners own more American assets than Americans own of foreign assets, which puts us on the opposite side of places like Japan or, or China or even Taiwan and, and things like that. And so you know, if we were to get you know, kind of a, a widespread currency weakness among multiple currencies, the dollar could pro fall pretty significantly because in order to kind of bring that trade equilibrium back, that'd be a pretty significant devaluation. And we saw a taste of that in 2020. I mean, the dollar fell, uh, you know, we, we printed more money than, than most other major currency blocks and our, our dollar kind of fell by a corresponding amount compared to a basket of foreign currencies. And so if that, if that rate differential were to continue, uh, especially given the fact that the United States has these structural deficits, you could see another round of devaluation. Look at that, right? What did the dollar index fall to like 94, 93 around there? It, took it actually touched down to the 89 level. Oh, 89. It's at 90 yeah. right now. I stopped paying yeah. attention to it at the wrong time. Damn. It's at 90 right now. It's insane. It's uh, in the, I had to thank you for, for stepping in after the, the, Nick Carter, Mike Green debate, and correcting Mike that there actually was inflation in the 1940s, and, and highlighting that. Um, people often, that. yeah, people often forget that. We always think of the 1970s as the inflationary decade, uh, and because when one, that's the most recent one, and two, uh, you know, when we think about the 1940s, we think about you know bigger things are happening. We we think about the war. If someone has, you know, what was happening in the 1940s, you say, well, World War II is happening. You say, what was happening domestically? You say, I don't know, building things for the war, and we think of like you know. Uh, Rosie the Riveter and things like that, but you know, few people would would say what was happening in terms of what were stocks doing, what was what was inflation looking like, what were yields. Most people don't really focus on that decade, you know, for some of those details. But you know, over the past century, we've had two inflationary decades, the 1940s and the 1970s, uh, and you know, they, they basically had very different response functions. So in the 1970s, the Federal Reserve came in and you know they slowly kept raising interest rates, and they couldn't really get ahead of it until Volcker came in and just just you know had the guts to do it. Uh, whereas 1940s, you know, uh, it was a different environment because in the 70s, they actually had low debt to GDP, both in the public sector and the private sector. So Volcker could raise rates to 20% and it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause mass insolvency because you had less leverage in the system. Whereas 1940s, the problem was that there was so much uh, uh, government uh, debt that they basically had to keep yields low to monetize it. Uh, and so they basically, you know, purposely let inflation run hot. And one of the differences was in the 1970s, you kind of had this like steady inflation. Like it wasn't, it wasn't kind of coming and going too quickly. I mean, you had, of course, ups and downs, but it was kind of a persistent uh, a phenomenon. Whereas the 1940s, you actually had higher inflation spikes, but it was more transient. You'd have like a spike in, the, in like, say, 1942. And, you know, we actually had like a year over year increase of like 20% on the CPI. And the next year it'd be like flat again. And the next year it'd be like 10% and then it'd be like flat again. And then it'd be like up to like 8% for like two years and then down again. And so you had that kind of a choppier situation. But by the end of the decade, you had about as much inflation as the 1970s. And the difference was they, they still held rates at basically zero. Should we consider you a historian or a 
Yeah, uh, your historical knowledge of all this stuff is extremely impressive. It's uh, it's insane what's going on. Yeah, I'm finally pulled up the Dixie chart here. I get touched down at 89, approaching the lows of 2018. Um, it'll be interesting to see if we go below that. You know, right now we've been in somewhat of a, a consolidation, and that's mm -hmm. natural because you know we've had kind of a stabilization of the broad money supply. You know, we had the big spike earlier in 2020, and since then we've kind of somewhat more stable. And so it'll be interesting to see how it responds to the the TGA drawdown that I mentioned. So when the Treasury uh, basically spends money that it's not issuing bonds for, because it already, it already pre-issued those bonds, all else equal, that should be pretty decent for dollar liquidity and therefore dollar bearish. Uh, and if you do get another, you know, $2 trillion stimulus package that, you know, the Federal Reserve buys a lot of those bonds for, that should be somewhat dollar bearish. The one dollar bullish variable is if we, if we do start to see these longer longer duration rates continue to rise, uh, that can you know stave off some of the devaluation. Uh, but then, of course, if that starts causing problems, if you start to see the housing market run into issues because mortgage rates are pushing up, and if you start to see uh, the corporate debt markets uh, you know get a little bit uh, jittery, kind of like we saw back in um, Q4 2018, mm -hmm. where the Fed, Fed was just saying, "Hey, we're on autopilot. We're gonna we're gonna keep tightening. We're gonna keep doing something like that," and you saw you know. People often talk about the stock market falling 20%, but if you look behind the scenes, uh, there's no junk bonds issued for six weeks in, in uh, late 2018. And that's, you know, if you look at what what was keeping Jerome Powell up at night, it wasn't the stock market falling 20%. It was it was a total freeze in the credit market. Uh, and so it, basically they can afford to raise rates until it breaks something. And then that's when they have to make that choice between basically either breaking that thing that's breaking or having the currency be the release valve in the sense that they say, okay, we're going to lock yields low despite inflation like they did in the 1940s. And then you have that, you know, release valve, but then all, it all gets kind of, you know, the currency gets taken out to the woodshed. Yeah. Wasn't there spat or not spasms, but like the CLO markets for, for the oil and gas industry specifically shale last year and, and a pretty rough go of it, especially after the crash in, in April and May. Yeah, definitely. And, and it was interesting because the Federal Reserve came in and, and basically bought corporate bonds, which they're not really supposed to do. But basically, if you have the if you have the Treasury and the Fed working together, I, I describe it as like uh, the nuclear keys. Like if you watch a movie and like they're going to launch a nuke, there's always like two generals that need to like put their key in to like, you know, they both have to do it. And it's kind of like that, like the, the Treasury has kind of legal limitations and the Federal Reserve has some legal limitations. Uh, but if they work together, they can pretty much do all these kind of all these other things i think they're more of a, a siamese twin than, than two individuals at this point they're sort of converged uh, yeah pretty much and that's and if you go back the last time they were in the situation was 1940s uh they basically semi-merged back then and that's when you have the situation where they're working very closely together yeah and i mean and then you have janet yellen former fed chairman as the treasury secretary um she she knows that game extremely well obviously probably very tight with Jer Jerome Powell. So they're probably going to work in unison for the duration of, of at least her tenure as treasury secretary, you'd have to imagine. Yeah, we'd imagine. And I mean, they can always, uh, you know, the eventually Jerome Powell's term is up. And so if he doesn't play ball, they have the option to potentially swap him out. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's kind of a, a tricky environment where, you know, the, the Federal Reserve, they're always in a situation where they want to be careful of the language they use around some of the actions that they're doing. But it's, it's funny because they're actually, if you look at their meeting minutes, they're actually pretty 
blunt about their concerns and what they're doing. And so they were actually talking about yield curve control. And they're like, yeah, we did the 1940s, but, you know, we don't really want to do that again because we basically totally lost independence. And, uh, you know, they actually, they published research papers on it and stuff. And they're like, yeah, we, we really don't want to be there again. And so if you look at kind of the history back then, the Federal Reserve really wasn't thrilled about the fact that they were, you know, essentially captured by the Treasury for the better part of a decade and basically relegated to being the monetizer of deficits. They didn't really like that. And so they kind of see that coming down the pike again, where they say, you know, we might have to do yield curve control, but we want to kind of push that off as long as possible because, you know, we basically lose control of our balance sheet size and we lose control of our independence if we basically have to use that to peg treasury rates. And so for right now, they're kind of trying to stand somewhat at arm's length where they're saying, okay, we're going to monetize a fixed amount per, per month, but we're not going to call it monetization. And we're just going to keep doing this thing. And we're going to hope that that's enough. And if something breaks and they might have to step in and, and do something that they would consider quite onerous, which would be something like formal yield curve control. Yeah. And again, with the context being different than the 1940s in certain ways, considering um, our deficit, like could they detach from each other if they if they come together in unison this time around? Like would it be too hard? Yeah, last time it took them literally a, a decade before they could split. And you started to see things where after the war was over, the Federal Reserve was like, okay, we can split now, right? And like the administration was like, oh no, not yet. And so like they 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 kind of stayed tied at the hip longer than than the Federal Reserve wanted. And it wasn't really until you had another inflation spike in the really early 50s. When they were like, okay, okay, guys, we have to separate this. This is getting really bad. And so then they were able to kind of uh, rotate out of that. Uh, but that was, in many ways, the United States was in a really good situation because they were one of the last uh, you know, economies standing after the war. Uh, and they kind of were able to kind of, you know, if you look at the 1940s, I mean, that was just massive deficit spending. And they were able to shift into basically austerity. So they didn't, they never paid down their federal debt. But they basically just held it flat for several years as nominal GDP continued to rise. And so you, you got the debt to GDP down uh, that way after inflating a big chunk of it away in the 40s due to yield curve control. And so I think it'd be much harder to pivot from this point because you know now a lot of the deficits are coming from demographics, things like Social Security and Medicare uh, that are you know longer lasting. I mean, they're projected to be a problem throughout the, you know, the next 15 years or so until we get past this demographics hump. Uh, and so, and again, just being in a situation where we have a structural current account deficit. Uh, and so it, it, it's definitely, I think, a, a, a much harder thing for them to kind of separate separate from if they were to kind of join again. Yeah, I mean, the demographics situation is, is extremely scary. Uh, I saw you tweeting about it earlier this week as well, but I saw another stat today, like uh, the, the average and median 401k balance across demographics 22 to 25 average is four grand 35 to 44 people who have a good amount of of uh, working left to do average 61,000 median 22,000 like the the uplift and the uptick in activities that's going to be needed from these younger demographics just doesn't seem like they have the the capital to do that if it's necessary and, he, and here's the dilemma from, from the federal perspective. If they, if they let rates rise, uh, that would uh, you know, diminish stock valuations uh, and uh, that, would, you know, that, would, that would cause all sorts of issues. And then a lot of those accounts would be even less funded. Uh, and then if you look at, for example, pension fund liabilities, uh, you know, they are often very short on their, on their liabilities. 
And so they have these very optimistic projections on the returns they're going to get. Even if you look at it and say, okay, bond yields are, you know, one and a half percent and stocks are, you know, in some ways the highest value they've ever been or nearly, nearly as highly valued as they've ever been. Uh, and so how exactly are you going to, you know, meet your total, you know, your, your at, historically average returns in an environment where most of these are, are you know, presenting pretty low, uh, you know, return uh, projections. Uh, and so, they're really in a tight spot because if they try to, you know, raise rates and they try to do all that, then they're going to, in some ways, have even more shortfalls that they probably end up monetizing. And so that's why I think the release valve most likely ends up being the currency uh, rather than some of these other things. Instead of kind of having large nominal cascading defaults, uh, you know, pretty much any fiat currency regime at the at the end of the day, when it comes down to that kind of collapse point, they they print. And so that's why I think we're likely to see, you know. Basically, if you look at, at kind of the macro analysts that are always kind of debating with each other about inflation versus deflation, it really comes down to what the response function is going to be because we have so much debt, so much de you know demographic issues. A lot of that is inherently deflationary, uh, but if that kind of causes an outright collapse and the response function, like we saw last year, was okay, we just print trillions of dollars then. And if that's not inflationary, we'll, just, we'll print another several trillion dollars. They'll keep printing likely until they get the inflation. And then the hard part is what are they... <laughs> What do they do at that point? Because that's where I think you're more like the 1940s, where you, they pretty much have to let it run hot, and that's for an environment where I'd certainly want to be holding something more finite than dollars. Yeah. So this is a Bitcoin podcast. Let's get into Bitcoin. <laughs> like, yeah. is, is Bitcoin our way out here? And that, I mean, I don't think you're, you're starting to see it at the corporate level. All these uh, CFOs putting Bitcoin on their balance sheets as a hedge against the the inflation that we're talking about right now and you're seeing uh, cities states starting to posture like they, they want bitcoin to be integrated into their operations to some capacity like is bitcoin a way out for uh individuals and then even at a larger scale like i, I was saying this last night on clubhouse during a, a conversation like in my mind like the fed should be like openly pushing people towards bitcoin is that actually may be the only way out that they have without like social upheaval uh, at this point, like is, they're going like they're going to default via inflation. It's pretty much a foregone conclusion at this point. Yeah, I think it's I think it's one of the ways out, and I think you know as Paul Tudor Jones said, it's it's arguably the fastest horse. Uh, and so you know I think that there are other things people can hold as well. Like for, we talked about copper, for example, and things like that. I mean, holding things of value that can't be printed uh, in general. Uh, but if you're looking at, you know, mature assets versus younger assets that are in their adoption curve, uh, you benefit not just from the inflation, but also from the the increased adoption, the network effects of the protocol. And so, you know, in that case, Bitcoin is not just an inflation play, but also, you know, the the, the bet on the idea that it's going to continue on the path that it has, for at least for the, the past, you know, 12 years, that that's going to continue. Uh, and so if that ends up being the case, then obviously Bitcoin would be a much faster horse than than gold or copper or other things like that. Um, but overall, I think, you know, the general approach is to have finite assets in general. And, and that means different things for different people. But I, I certainly think that Bitcoin's, you know, one of the key ones to have. And, you know, there's a couple of ways to play it because you have, you know, if you look at the corporate balance sheets, you have the Michael Saylors of the world that go all in. And I think that's going to be pretty rare. Uh, but on the other hand, you have like squares of the world that say, okay, we're going to put 5% of our, of our cash into Bitcoin so that if, you know, let's say we have inflation, you know, Bitcoin will probably moon, right? So that could, that could go up 5x, 10x, uh, and that can kind of offset the fact that our cash is kind of, you know, devaluing. 
And so it ends up being kind of a wash or kind of a mild benefit. And so they're not, you know, they're not too much worried about the, the price movements of Bitcoin. They're not kind of watching that all the time because, you know, worst case scenario, if they're wrong and Bitcoin doesn't take off, they've only risked 5% of their capital. On the other hand, if they do have that inflationary event, uh, their balance sheet is protected uh, by their, their relatively small Bitcoin uh, position. And so I do think that's, you know, probably a way that a lot of corporations should play it is by having at least a non-zero position. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see that pop up more, especially in some of these, you know, more tech savvy companies. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that adoption helps shield Bitcoin from overregulation or an outright ban. I think that's that's an argument that I've used. A lot of people uh, have, have said that if Bitcoin gets too big, it's more likely to be banned. Uh, whereas I've argued the opposite, that the bigger it gets, the harder it is to ban because then you're going after the Stanley Druckenmillers of the world. You're going after S&P 500 companies. You're going after basically the donor class, like have fun. <laughs> so, you know, if Bitcoin was sub $100 billion and, you know, you could be like, oh, we have to be in this like Silk Road thing. And, you know, we, you, it's, it's easier to do when it's small. Uh, but once it's, it's so widely distributed that literally senators have it, like it's, it's really hard at that point to say, oh, yeah, we're just this whole like, uh, you know, trillion dollar, maybe by that point, multi-trillion dollar project. Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and try to shut that off. Like, you know, good luck with the, the kind of pushback you're going to get from, you know, all levels of society at that point. Yeah, right. And that's actually one thing I really appreciate about Paul Tudor Jones' uh, description of Bitcoin. Um, it wasn't when he made the, the fastest, worst comment. It was a couple of months later, but he says it's a bet on optimism too, innovation, which it honestly is. Particularly like some of the things that we've been talking about, supply chain is something I think about a lot. So what we're doing at Great American Mining and actually building physical things that we're dropping off and oil fields that exist in the United States and then helping to secure those supply chains and the integral businesses in the energy sector here. Like, I, I think they should just open it up and let people innovate. And it could be actually an incredible safety net for the precarious situation we put ourselves in. Yeah, I think you know, the earliest use case of Bitcoin was as a, as a store of value, but I think as as Lightning continues to develop, uh, you know, and as we see things like the Strike app and, and and things like that, that can you know turn more and more into kind of a, a network for payments, even for people that aren't necessarily interested in, in in paying in Bitcoin, they can just use Bitcoin as the intermediary, like like Jack Mullers is doing it at Strike, uh, and so I think that's that's certainly something to watch. And then, uh, you know, lately we've had a lot of, uh, you know, the, the kind of the cycle of, of uh, Bitcoin criticism kind of goes around like, you, like it was famous, like uh, uh, Bitcoin dice, like you have, uh, you know, the tether FUD and then you have, uh, oh. so lately we've had the environmental uh, kind. And so, uh, yeah, actually one, one thing is, cause I'll, I'll share this with my audience as well. Like, tell me what you're doing uh, with the mining side, uh, with the, um, you know, the energy, because I think a lot of people have misunderstandings of how that energy works in, as it regards to, to Bitcoin. Yeah, so what we're doing specifically at Great American Mining is we, as a mining, a Bitcoin mining company, we have a strong incentive to drive our cost of power production down as low as possible. It just so happens the greatest opportunity that we found uh, to, to drive that power cost down very low. Um, and that could help us achieve the scale we want to achieve is on oil and gas fields and at midstream collection sites where, where there's a ton of excess natural gas that's either being completely wasted or undervalued by the market compared to what it could be valued at if it was used to mine Bitcoin. Um, and so like the main use case right now is just going to producers predominantly in North Dakota and the Bakken because they're flaring 
restrictions are the, the strictest in the country and saying, hey, let's do an offtake agreement. We will help you reduce your flare. We'll buy that gas from you. You're going to take that previously, uh, that asset has previously been dragged on your balance sheet and we're going to pay you for it. So you're going to get some revenue and then we'll use that to mine Bitcoin. And we have a thesis at Great American Mining that these producers are, are going to come to learn like the, the opportunity that exists by turning that gas into Bitcoin. And so we say, hey, look, we're doing this offtake agreement. Look how much money we're making in these containers that we're dropping off in your well pads. Like you should be participating in this. Um, and, and so basically we're playing an energy arbitrage game where we need cheap energy. It's provided in abundance uh, via gas that would otherwise be flared. And so that's what we're doing. We're trying to create an efficiency in that particular sector of, of the oil and gas industry, a very niche sector, the flaring um, aspect of, of their operations. And, and we think it's like a beautiful way to, to solve that problem, uh, to, to secure supply chains. And actually, like we, we are reducing methane emissions, but there's a good case to be made that adding this revenue stream in the form of Bitcoin mining, which is driven by completely different demand factors than oil and gas sales, um, and is another service that's demanded 24-7, 365, adding blocks to the Bitcoin blockchain, like you create a new revenue stream and it completely adjusts the opportunity costs in the field where you, maybe you don't build as many pipelines, maybe you don't drill as many wells, you just create more efficient drilling and delivery of these mo molecules to market. I think that's what a lot of people are missing about Bitcoin energy is that Bitcoin really kind of goes out to, uh, you know, find energy that is not being used properly. And so, you know, the classic example was, you know, overbuilt like uh, uh, dams in China. And so you had these periods during wet season where there's just too much electricity that's not really being consumed. And so mining rigs could, could you know, be mobile and go to those places and basically, you know, absorb that, that waste, otherwise wasted energy and convert it to something useful. And you're basically doing the same thing with, you know, uh, you know the, the flaring issue and saying, okay, you have this issue, you have these little periods where uh, you, you can't necessarily make economic use of that energy. And so we're going to come in and, and basically, you know, use that energy for something that, that is mobile, that we can come to you. And I think that's, you know, it's not like uh, every every additional Bitcoin transaction results in more energy. It's like, no, there's a set amount of energy that's being done based on the, the difficult adjustment and based on the price and based on all that. There's that kind of underlying, uh, you know, uh, a proof of work that's happening. And then any transactions we, we build on that network are essentially no, no additional marginal uh, energy consumption, especially if you start using things like lightning and you kind of batch multiple transactions into one major chain that actually uh, it can be quite effective uh, and efficient uh, when you kind of look at the, the full scope of how it works. Yeah, it's extremely efficient. It's an extremely efficient settlement layer. People don't get batching transactions. The fact that like, yeah, people say like, oh my God, you're, you're sending a Bitcoin transaction that's taking up like the, the energy of a whole city. It's like, what are you even talking about? People don't understand how energy is produced and delivered to market and how grids work. And it is people, number one, arguing from ignorance. And then number two, like the other case is like moralizing energy consumption, which is like one of the most perplexing things. Uh, like, why are you berating Bitcoin miners for consuming energy? They're paying a price for it. And there's sure this is supposed to be a free market for energy if somebody's willing to pay for it. Nobody else is willing to go to these flares and, and tell them to turn them off and give, give us the gas to consume it. Like nobody else is doing that but Bitcoin miners because arguably nobody else can. Everybody says, well, that, 
like you could get more value out of that gas by running like data centers, but you really can't because the data centers would never go there because of the reliability issues. Like if we have our generators go down and our Bitcoin miners are down for an hour, um, that's okay. The Bitcoin network keeps going. It doesn't disrupt the network at all. Relative, like it's, if it does at all, maybe it slows down blocks by milliseconds uh, for if our operations were to go down. But uh, like if you have an Amazon web server out there and that goes down for an hour and you have like critical internet infrastructure and people's businesses going down, like that's untenable. Um, so this, this process of proof of work mining to, to uh, secure the Bitcoin network is probably one of the only use cases that, that makes sense in these, these flare gas situations. Yeah. It's the, it's the most mobile demand source of energy pretty much. And, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, if, if you do have a disruption, it really only affects you. It affects your revenue rather than affecting someone else's, uh, you know, the reliability of the network. Uh, and so that's what makes it be able to go to these rough situations. And, you know, you, you can have a situation where 98% uptime is good enough. It doesn't have to be 99.99% because you're not really affecting anyone else. You're just kind of making as much use as you can out of that waste uh, um, uh, product. And I guess one thing I'd be curious on is, are you seeing traction? Like you seeing growth or are you seeing like, uh, I don't know how long you've been doing it, but what, like, have you actually seen that more and more producers are becoming aware of this and interested in it? Or you, uh, is it still kind of like falling on deaf ears? I mean, we're getting uh, a lot more people reaching back to us after conversations from last year as the price of Bitcoin's gone up. I mean, it's like anything in Bitcoin, like the, the search terms going up uh, as the price goes up and the interest from the oil and gas market um is is very similar see the price going up they remember oh the great american mining company was was annoying us for our gas last year they still want it yeah i, I think interest is certainly increasing and what we found actually there's like a lot of very strong bitcoin advocates in a lot of these uh, oil and gas companies throughout throughout the whole supply chain they tend to actually be like mid-level managers or like vps and not at the executive um suite but the the they get Bitcoin, they get the opportunity that exists, but there is like a teaching an old dog, a new trick type of situation here. But we, we've definitely been making significant leeway. Like we just tripled our capacity last week. We're probably going to wow. uh, triple it from here over the next couple of months. And then hopefully like 10 exit from there throughout the, the rest of the year. Um, nice. And yeah, I mean, in the oil and gas industry is specifically the last 12 13 months it's had the shale industry has been wrecked by by what happened in, in the with the demand shock from the lockdowns and the global supply chains grinding to a halt uh and the shale industry arguably had some of the worst allocated capital they misallocated capital uh pretty significantly throughout the first two decades of the century and taking out huge like i used to work at a third-party valuation firm and we would we would uh you have like third-party valuations for PE firms uh, investing in mid-market companies specifically. So like I, I had some oil companies past my desk and doing and diving into their financials. They were taking out $100 million, 17% pick loans in, in 2012, projecting the price of a barrel of oil to be $100 like in the perpetuity. Like it, it was insane like how capital is being misallocated there. And so I think the combination what happened last year, the Bitcoin price going up and desperation to to sort of right the way and, and get on some sturdy legs is is definitely increasing uh, interest in what we're doing specifically. 
Yeah, the whole the whole past decade for shale producers has been like free cash flow negative. Like they over the course of like a full oil cycle, they never really made money. And now we're seeing drying up of uh, investment capital because now you have uh, on one hand, I mean, investors are just tired of of burning money. And then two, you have ESG mandates where, for example, some pension funds are saying we're not going to allocate to oil uh, stocks anymore. And so we're just going to not have this kind of constant uh, flow of money going towards that. And like, you know, whatever uh, PE funds we're, we're going to pick or whatever um, hedge funds we're going to invest in, we want to, you know, they have to report to us what their ESG requirements are. And so you can potentially have less uh, big capital flows going to the, those companies. And so rather than their business model being to basically just keep collecting capital and then drilling unprofitably, they have to figure out how to actually be profitable and have somewhat of a self-sustaining business that isn't always reliant on new capital coming in. So any sort of efficiency they can squeeze out from their operations is, is, is increasingly essential for them. Yes. And the ESG narrative is, is growing strong. And I think producers may have been just like trying to swat it away from their ear um, for, for a little bit there, but now like there's been a material like effort to like, all right, let's, let's, Let's be ESG friendly here because we're not going to get any money. Uh, we saw the New York Department of Finance come out earlier this year, or late last year and say they're not going to allow any companies domiciled in, in New York to, to invest in these companies that aren't ESG friendly. Yeah, I mean, the, the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund is Norway's. It's like a trillion dollars. And it was, I mean, it, I think it was originally called the oil fund. Like they got all their, you know, they, they basically collected uh, money from their oil production, which was partially state owned. They put it into a giant sovereign wealth fund for their people. Uh, and now, you know, they're at the point where they're kind of divesting from oil and gas stocks because they want to have uh, an ESG mandate. And so it just really limits the amount of capital from, from multiple of these sources that keeps going to these projects. And so, yeah, I think something like, you know, converting a, a what is normally a cost for them into something that, that generates a little bit of revenue is like, I don't mm. see why, I don't see why any of them would, would turn that down. I mean, it's not a little bit of revenue. Like you <laughs> made a gas to hash calculator and that compares the, the opportunity cost of using your gas to mine Bitcoin instead of sending it through a pipeline at Henry hub prices. The multiples are with older generation miners too, or 15, 20 X on any given wow. day. Like, and when you, take that to, to flared gas situations like and they're literally spending money for this like it, sometimes the producers don't believe it like it's way too good to be true like it doesn't make sense to them are um, you finding it, are you finding issues sourcing equipment because you've had semiconductor shortages and things like that uh we haven't personally um we are cautiously optimistic that we we won't run into problems uh again our our cost of power production is at such a point where we don't have to buy the newest generation hardware, which is having the most significant supply uh, crunch right now. Um, we've, we've been lucky that we've been able to source miners pretty easily relative to, to a lot of the people with higher energy costs, um, just because we can, we can use older models that, that aren't as efficient, but are still profitable at, at our cost of power production. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. I don't see why they all wouldn't do that. Yeah, it's uh, no, no, like I'm actually bullish on like everybody's like poo pooing the semiconductor market right now. And obviously, it is in dire straits. We see headlines like Samsung building a, a fab in Austin, TSMC building one in Arizona. I think over the next five, seven, ten years, um, we'll see we'll see a boon of of chip fabs uh, and chip production on, on North American soil. I think there's even like rare earth mineral mines being found um, in places like New Mexico um, that, that helps that situation as well. 
I think that's part of a big trend we're going to see is just more and more kind of a country's trying to be as self-sufficient as possible and, and not relying on, on kind of these narrow bottlenecks we've seen around the world. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, we've been talking about the fragility of the system, whether it be financial or supply chain, like it's, we need to do like it's <laughs> we need to do it okay there's no like, i think we've hit the pendulum has swung to one extreme and it needs to start swinging back to to an equilibrium um in some regards and that's I how it, it's gone like that in history too i mean this isn't the first time we've had kind of peak globalization and then kind of a concerns to pull it back we've had if you look back a century ago there were periods where we had you know it wasn't globalization in quite the same way it is now but it was still globalization and then you start to have frictions from that, and then you kind of pull back, and it's another one of those big cycles that that humans keep going through. Yeah. So we humans, we're we're weird, social, rhythmic animals. It's uh, yeah, inher- inherently cyclical, like everything yeah. else. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, we're the fourth turning generation, it seems. <laughs> so we get, thank God we have fourth turning money in Bitcoin. But I'm like extremely optimistic. I you know. A lot of people are going to listen to the first hour of this conversation, first 45 minutes, and be like, oh, God, it seemed pretty terrible. But thank God we have Bitcoin. Like, and I'm like, I get excited to wake up and talk to producers and pitch this. Like, it, it provides a very, like Paul Tudor Jones said, like an optimistic view of the future and um, something like a space race, or I won't say a nuclear arms race, but like a space race to, to sort of plant a flag at some point in the future and direct. Our society towards that because there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot of flared gas out there there's a lot of stranded renewables there's a lot of grid systems to secure and this is just in the context of bitcoin mining um when you when you take it to things like lightning like you were discussing and, and the software side of things that there's even a more massive opportunity it's it's hard to fathom yeah one argument i made the other the other month was that you know uh, in many ways, the 2010s were kind of a depressionary environment. It's just that it was disguised by a lot of other factors, like increasing technology and, and kind of the, the expansion of the base money we've seen. Uh, whereas actually, if you look at, you know, GDP growth per capita and, you know, production uh, growth, it was actually a really, really weak decade. And we saw, you know, unfortunately, like uh, increases in, in things like homelessness or increases in in kind of deaths of despair. You saw kind of lower life expectancy. Uh, and but and so one argument I made is that in some ways it was kind of a mild depression, uh, and it, but it's one of those things where if you were if you were going to go through a depression now versus a depression a hundred years ago, most people would rather go through a depression now when you have technology that that provides a lot more options to kind of move forward with that. And so yeah, I think that's the key thing to focus on is that if, if people kind of make use of whatever technology they they can. Uh, that's one way to soften the blow of some of these these big cyclical turnings. It's, it's really kind of doubling down on on innovation and, and technology, and, and kind of using it for good rather than uh, financializing it or, or things like that. Is kind of what can what can be most efficiently deployed uh, in in solving problems. Free market creating a jobs program. Who would have thunk it? It's uh, <laughs> it's, uh they, they can't believe it in Washington. Hopefully, Brad Sherman gets chained to his desk and isn't allowed to fud Bitcoin anymore. <laughs> because they need to get out of the way and just let us go build. That's the thing too. Like again, like going back to like the physical nature of what we're building, it's being built on U.S. soil. We we have a warehouse in Louisiana. We build our PDUs. We build our containers. We we get our fans from Canada, I believe. Like it's a North American supply chain. Obviously, we get the miners from China and other parts of of the world. But uh, or there is a significant amount of uh, materials in our containers that we're building that are sourced in. The United States and North America in general. 
and hopefully over time, the semiconductors will increasingly become, you know, more North American as well, and and just uh, those supply chains will hopefully become more distributed. One one crazy stat is that, you know, pretty much all uh, RAM, for example, memory is, is is comes out of just just you know uh, two countries. There's really kind of three companies that are responsible for almost all RAM worldwide, and it, it, it's just it, it's you know interesting how kind of tight some of these bottlenecks are that people don't realize. Yeah, random access memories. Rest in peace, Daft Punk. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's insane. It is. It's hard to believe we let it get to this point, but we're here. What are we gonna do? Mope or actually do something about it? I hate the moping. There's a lot of moping. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, I think uh, let's be optimistic. People like to paint Bitcoiners as doomers. We're not doomers. We're just we just want to smack everybody in the face. And be like, wake up! We got a lot of work to do. <laughs> That's a good way to approach it. Right. Well, Lynn, this has been a pleasure. Is there anything else uh, we should chat about before we wrap up here? I think that pretty much covers it. I think this, you know, people think the 2020 was a crazy year, but I think 2021 is another kind of year for the record books because, you know, now we kind of had the, the, the first part of the cycle. And now we're kind of watching what happens on the other end of that cycle. So what happens when, when things start reopening more, when you start to get those uh, bond yields pushing back up, when you start to get maybe some of the effects of, of the broad money supply increase. And so seeing how different institutions kind of navigate that is going to be, a, you know, kind of a, I think, a pretty interesting thing to watch and to see how, you know, I mean, see how Bitcoin goes, because it's, you know, it's still in the kind of the, the favorable part of its historical kind of four-year cycle. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to watch, you know, how, how high is it going to get? And it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's this 12-year-old experiment and so far it's gone like clockwork. And so the key thing to watch is, is it going to continue to, to go on and, you know, what, what are kind of the surprise buyers going to be? Like who's going to be the next corporation and maybe put some on their balance sheet. And I think it's just kind of interesting, really interesting year. Yeah. And you consider the fact that all this is happening in the internet age and the communications technology and how fast everything can spread at the pace of change. I mean, this has been true all throughout history with technological advancement, but the pace of change is insane. Um, yeah. I mean, it's something like the first, the fastest assets to hit a trillion dollars, right? I mean, it's faster yeah. than all the other major companies did. And if, you know, some of that is, uh, I guess, inflation adjusted. So you know, I, I, I'm not sure if it's, it probably might still be the, the fastest to hit a trillion dollars, even if you account for inflation. So yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a, a powerful message. Yeah. It's idea that time has come and it's a good idea, <laughs> despite the fact that people think it has no use value. I would love for the people fighting Bitcoin's energy use from the, uh, the argument that it provides no value to the world to go to Nigeria, tell the, tell the women of the NSARS movement that, that Bitcoin has provided them no value to go to Venezuela, uh, to, to individuals who have used Bitcoin to remit money so they could buy medicine and food and tell them Bitcoin has no value, to go to uh, Belarus where people have been protesting and, and needed to turn to Bitcoin to, to buy food and, and live life when their bank accounts got shut down, tell them it has no value. We'll get these no-coiners. We're going to get them there. <laughs> uh, good luck. <laughs> Lynn, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for doing what you do and thank you for joining me this afternoon. Yep, thanks for having me on. All right. Peace and love, freaks.